0: Thank you so very much for the wonderful music today and the message and song. It's been a tremendous blessing uh, to hear you sing. And uh, what a privilege has been afforded to me today to open up God's Word to you. And uh, just looking forward to our time together. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Ron DeGuard. Uh, I serve the Lord as an evangelist. We actually am the staff evangelist at Bible Baptist Church up in Matthews, North Carolina. And uh, and we have been to the church here, and I've preached many times before, and uh, but it is really our distinct privilege to be able to be here with you today. My wife is with me. She's in the front row here. It's my wife, Kristen, and then we have our two boys with us. We have Andrew, who is 16, and then Austin just turned 15. They're, they are a junior and sophomore in high school, and then we have... Our two oldest children, our two girls, are at Pensacola Christian College, and Abby is a uh, junior nursing major, and then Alyssa is a sophomore double major in pre-law and violent performance. And so... I don't know how that works. Maybe she's going to sue somebody and then play a swan song. I don't know, but whatever. I I don't know what they're doing now. I just know they're in school. And uh, we uh, we just had our Thanksgiving time in Atlanta. That's where I grew up, and we were with uh, my family, and we have some family from Florida drive up. And so I trust you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and uh, we just certainly were just so grateful for that. Uh, Just about a year and a half ago, um, I decided I didn't want to be a Yankee anymore in Matthews, North Carolina, so we moved to Rock Hill. And uh, so we're just about eight-tenths of a mile away from your church, and I just want to just take a moment to publicly express my gratitude for many of the men in the church who came over and helped us. We were kind of in a pinch and in some need and uh, several of the guys came over and just helped us out with the house and, and unload a truck. And uh, there's a whole story behind that, but we just had furniture that we needed to move in and I was preaching in Northland and flying out in a few hours. And so uh, we have just been extremely blessed by uh, your kindness to our family. And I just wanted to express my gratitude for that. And again, I just look forward to the privilege to speak to you. And then um, when I found out that, Uh, all of the fan family was down here for Thanksgiving, and uh, I realized why Marshall didn't want to preach today. He's recovering from emotional distress from being around Joe. And so I understand that, and so we trust that you'll be able to recoup. In enough time, but uh, but we love the Fan family, We and we're so grateful for the faithfulness of your family, and, and throughout the years of ministry here, And just what a great privilege I have today. Look out and see many folks that we know, we see the Hymans, we've preached with them many times, and they're dear friends of our family, and, and the Bailey's, we're in church together, and just so many other, uh, and Brother Dickens, and and uh, just it's our privilege to be able to be here today. And we just trust today, as we have corporately sung praise about God, that we would look at the Scripture a specific scripture today, and that we would uh, just really give praise to our God as we consider who he is uh, during this Thanksgiving season. Well, would you look at Psalm 116, and uh, I'm just going to read just really the first two verses that I'm going to pray, and then ask the Lord to help us during our time together. In verse one, it says, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications, because he hath inclined his ear unto me, therefore will I call upon him as long as I live. Father, I pray today as we look at this psalm that you would, Father, unpack this text for us, that we would be able to feel what the psalmist felt, see what he saw, understand about you what he understood. Help us to see, Lord, you through the eyes of the psalmist this morning and our inspiration of scripture. Father, would you allow our entire life to be a life of sacrifice and praise to you. Thank you in advance for what you'll do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven, specifically speaking about the United States. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. Those words were written by Abraham Lincoln in March of 1865. And yet it seems that maybe these words were never more true as the day in which we live. And the Bible says that God daily loads us with benefits. We have a God that is so, so good to us. And as we look at this particular psalm, it's a psalm of praise to our Lord. And what I want us to do this morning is we walk through this text and really walk through this past year in our mind and just remind ourselves how good God has been to us and the things that he has done for us and simply who he is. And I think that's what the psalmist is doing here. In fact, Psalm 116 is a a part of a group of psalms known as the Hallel Psalms. Those are psalms of praise. Specifically, it's uh, Psalm 110 to 118, but specifically Psalm 113 to 118 are known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Those are psalms that were particularly celebrating uh, the the freedom from Egypt and the bondage. In Psalm 113, it mentions uh, the, the release of bondage from Egypt, and that's kind of where they get their name. But Psalm 113 to 118, these Hallel Psalms, these were psalms that were sung at the Passover, and when our Lord had the disciples in that upper room, they would have sung Psalm 113 and 114 before they started their meal and that feast. And in Psalm 116, this is when they would take the cup. And then when the Bible says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the night, that would have been Psalm 118. So these are the Hallel Psalms that are giving praise and honor to God. Now, usually an individual psalm, a, a psalm of thanksgiving, uh, has a particular outline to it. There's a lot of commentators who really struggle with Psalm 116 and say there's really no particular order. There's some kind of strange things that are thrown into it. But I believe that really there is a particular order uh, that we do find in Psalm chapter 116. And really usually what happens is in, in the first in the first part of the Psalm, there's an introduction by the Psalmist. And this is an intention of, of what he's writing about or his intention to give thanks. And then in the body of the psalm, it's a narrative, and it describes the events that led the psalmist to praise God, and then the end of the psalm is a conclusion about his response, and I really uh, believe uh, that is really the structure that we find here in verses 1 and 2. We find really, I think, his intention uh, really to, to, to give praise unto our God. Have you ever heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? And we may, and you may have even said that as well as I've said that sometimes. But you know what the fact is? You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. And In fact, could I submit to you, it's really the opposite. God helps the helpless. And it's our, those times when, when we are just debilitated and we feel crippled and there's no way we can affect change in our circumstance when we go into that fiery furnace of affliction or the trials of life that sometimes the Lord chooses to put us in. Sometimes we're helpless and there's nothing we can do. We have a God who helps the helpless in those times of affliction. And this is really where we find this psalm. Many believe that this psalm was actually written uh, by David. And David doesn't particularly give us what the circumstance that was going on at the time. And uh, there are some who believe, and we'll see this later in the text, that it was a deadly disease. Uh, It was a physical deliverance. He could have been running from Saul. He could have been running uh, from Absalom. We don't know particularly what event in David's life prompted this specific psalm, but maybe the Spirit of God did that on purpose. Because if this was a specific trial, we would hear it this morning and we would say, well, that doesn't speak to me in my life of what I'm facing right now. And so maybe under inspiration of scripture, they left that blank. So now we can insert our trial or our affliction into this Psalm. And we learn so much about our God. I want you to see, first of all, in this Psalm, number one, I want you to see this Psalmist resolve. And here we see David's adoration. I want you to see this Psalmist resolve Here we see David's adoration in verses 1 and 2. Notice what he says here in verse 1. He says, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. So there's a lot of scholars who believe, Hebrew uh, uh, scholars who believe that really this subject is not going with I love the Lord. You could read it this way, I love because the Lord hath heard my prayers. And it really has an intensification of David's love for his God. But he says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. That word hear, it really means to listen or to pay close attention to. Because he says in verse 2, he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. So here here is really the introduction. This is David's adoration. I love the Lord because look at who he is and what he's done for me. This is a psalm giving thanks for answered prayer and a physical deliverance that he gave to David. And he says, I love the Lord because look at who he is and what he's done for me. And then you begin to see really number two, I want you to see the psalmist rescue. And here we see David's intervention. We see now we begin to see what really God does for the psalmist. And we see how God steps in. And I want us to look closely at this. And I want you to see how God intervened in the life of David in the middle of his affliction. By the way, this past year, has God put you on a road or in a trial you never would have chosen yourself? But there you were. Dealing with circumstances you never would really want in your life. And you may have even asked yourself your question, God, what are you doing? Or God, why are you doing this? Can I tell you, just as the Lord in in Psalm 23 says, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness, right paths, sometimes those paths, those right paths, are through the valley of the shadow of death. But look at how God intervenes for the psalmist and how he intervenes for you and me. Three particular ways how God, I think, and we see here in 116, how God intervenes for David. First of all, he hears. Aren't you so glad we have a God who answers prayer? We're going to go back to the introduction in verse 1 and 2 where he says, I love the Lord, but I specifically want us to zero in that the first way how God intervened in the life of David in the middle of his affliction and the way God intervenes in our life when we're going through trial or tragedy is that first of all, he hears. Notice in verse 1, he says, I love the Lord because he hears. That word has the idea to examine. It literally is the Hebrew word to bow down. Or to bend your ear. I remember when my mom was, my grandmother was on her deathbed. She was saying something and we couldn't hear. So you know what we did? We bowed our ear, our head close to her so we could hear what she was saying. And we do this a lot with our kids. When, you know, they're crying, we can't understand what they're saying. You know what we're doing? We're getting in close because we're examining what they're saying. We're listening intently. That's the picture of our heavenly father. He bows his ear to listen to you. And he examines our prayer. Notice in verse 2, or he says, my voice in verse 1. He heard my voice and my supplication. That word supplication has the idea of pleading. You know what, friend? There ought to be a passion in our prayer life. We just don't look at prayer as something that's mechanical. We are talking to the God of heaven who's our shepherd who loves us. Man, there ought to be a passionate. And David said that he heard my pleading. It says, because he has inclined his ear to me. And again, that the word incline has the idea to bow down or to get close to. He says, therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. The very first way how God intervened in the life of David in the middle of his trial is that he heard David. All right, Tori was visiting an elderly woman in a hospital who had contracted an elder uh, who contracted a, a terminal disease. And he was in the room where the doctor walked in, and he says, Ma'am, we have done everything medical science can do for you. It's time to pray. She sighed and says, Oh, has it come down to this? <laughs> Speaking of prayer. Dr. Tory and his quick wit, says, Ma'am, it always starts with this. Speaking of prayer. The doctor stepped out into the hallway with Dr. Tory, and the medical doctor said, Brother Tory, I understand you're a learned man but you don't understand medical science her disease is terminal there's nothing we can do for her he said sir i realize that i don't understand medical science but i do understand our messiah dr Torrey started to pray that god would heal that that god would heal that woman in which 3 days later god did and as a direct result of that answered prayer that doctor came to know the lord and was born again you know what he hears we have a God who doesn't frustrate you. Why would God command you to pray if it didn't make a difference? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, it availeth much. Look back at 2023 and look at how much God has answered prayer. This past uh, April, we were in Washington State in meetings, and Austin Berge, the young family, he's the uh, the husband of the young family that travels with us, his truck broke down, and uh, it was, it was going to be a very expensive repair. So uh, the pastor was asking about it. We were just at the table in the church. we just finished lunch. And so uh, he, the pastor said, well, why don't we pray for Austin? And so he prayed and uh, that God would provide for him and that God would bring in some money uh, really to help him with the repair of that truck. And uh, we had ended praying. And uh, there was someone that actually came to the table and says, how much do those kids need to fix their truck? And wrote a check for $5,000. You have not because you asked not. We haven't even left the table. I went to the pastor and said, hey, can you pray for me? <laughs> I'd say that's our God. And he loves to hear you. But look back at Psalm 116. He intervened on David's behalf with prayer, with hearing his prayer. But number two, he not only hears, but number two, he helps. You see this in verses 3 to 7. Would you look at this? He said the cords, those are of the ropes uh, of death has compassed me. And, uh, and really that word death, uh, it has the, uh, that is the same word that is translated either death or a deadly disease or plague or epidemic. This is where scholars believe that this could be a deadly disease that really was coming on the life of David. Have you ever faced a life-threatening disease? Have you ever been in the position where you were waiting for the biopsy of a tumor that they took out? We've been there. Possibly that's right where David was, and maybe you can identify with that. He says, the cords of death have compassed me. He says, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. That word terrors, uh, it has the idea of anguish. He said, I found distress and sorrow. The word distress is the same word we get our English word Sarah from. It means uh, anxiety or an extreme di- uh, distress of body and mind. And so there, there was an anguish. There, there was an anxiety about what was happening, a fear of how this was all going to unfold. He said, I found distress and sorrow. And that is the word for Agony. It's a condition of great sadness, and it's usually associated in Scripture with a loss or bereavement. Have you lost a loved one that has gone on before you this year? So David is saying the deaths of the death uh, that the cords of death have compassed me, and this this anguish and this anxiety, and this and this agony has rolled upon me be very similar to what paul the position paul was in in second corinthians in chapter one in verse eight where he says these words for we would not brethren have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in asia that we were pressed out of measure above strength and so much that we despaired even of life but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in god which raiseth The dead who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So he's recounting what he is going through. And look at verse four. He says, then I called upon the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I beseech you, save my life. And that word save literally is the word for rescue. That's why we're seeing David's rescue here. But would you look at verses five and six? You see a picture that David prays about God. And this is repeated in other places in the Old Testament. Would you just meditate just for a moment who this rescuer is that intervenes in the life of David? He says, Gracious is the Lord. Hanun is the Hebrew word there, and it means to be disposed to bestow favor or blessing. Listen, gang, we don't have this God in heaven that just can't wait to zap you with a laser bolt when you step out of line or when you sin or when you mess up. And sometimes we have that view that God is this angry ogre that just lives in the sky that can't wait to punish us. You know what David is saying? We have a God who is gracious, that his natural posture toward you is bent on bestowing favor and goodness in your life. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them who trust in him. Nahum 1-7. That's our God. He is good. He is gracious. That's his natural posture towards you. It says, gracious is the Lord. It says this in in verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. It's the word to do right. Listen, God doesn't do something because it's right. It's right because God does it. God's always going to do the right thing. Genesis 18, shall not the judge of the earth do right. As for God, his way is perfect. He's not going to make a mistake in your life. And many times, you know what God is doing in life? He is moving the pieces on the stage of life. And we think God made a mistake. And sometimes we think, God, if I were doing this thing, I would do this a whole lot. uh, I would do this much differently than what you're doing. But we have a God who always does the right thing. And he's maneuvering the pieces on the stage of life in such a way to bring himself glory and good in your life. If you study chess at all or you are a, are a lover of the game of chess, you know the name Bobby Fischer. As Bobby Fischer was one of the greatest chess players ever, ever to exist, as, as he would move a piece, he would, he would force his opponents to move their pieces in certain places, and depending on what they did, he would maneuver his pieces. And in his mind, he's thinking, you know what, I could have checkmate, but it's going to take me 12 moves. Sometimes it only takes him two. But he knows I'm 12 or 16 moves down the road with us and he knows where he's going and he's patient and he's just waiting for his opponent to react to what he's doing. And you know what? 12 moves later, 16 moves later, he puts his opponent in checkmate. Can I just tell you in your trial and your affliction, God is just moving the pieces on the stage of life. He's already 12 moves ahead of you and you just have to trust him and be patient because he's about to put the devil in checkmate. And he's going to bring it to a glorious end. So he's gracious, as the Lord, and righteous. It says in verse 5, yea, our God is merciful. That's the word, to be compassionate. Now, this word means to show kindness. And it doesn't necessarily mean to grant forgiveness, but it is so closely connected with it that it usually carries that idea. You know, we have a God that is merciful. God is merciful to those that are in distress, and God is merciful to those who deserve judgment. Aren't you glad for that? And then he says this in verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. The word preserves means to watch over or to guard. He preserves the simple. That means those that are ignorant or naive. Maybe they're ignorant or naive to evil. God preserves those. He watches over those. He guards those when you don't know what to do. But look at what he says in the very next verse. He says, the Lord has preserved it's the simple. I was brought low, that means to, to make tiny or or to lack what is needed, and he helped me. Verse 7: return unto thy rest, O my soul. David's not talking to God, he's talking to himself. You know what he's doing in his trial? He is recounting the Lord's person. Listen, we have a God this morning who is good, and he is gracious, and he's always going to do the right thing. And we have a God that just has a natural bent on bestowing favor upon you. And we have a God who is merciful to those in distress, and he's merciful to those that deserve judgment, and he watches over you when you don't know what to do. That's what you ought to be preaching to yourself in your trial and your affliction. And notice he says in verse 7, return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with me. And verse 8, for thou hast delivered my soul from death. And so here you see specifically how the Lord has helped them. First of all, he, he was delivered from death. You have delivered my soul from death. Secondly, from distress, my, my eyes. From tears, there was an emotional distress that just swept over David as he was sorrowful. He said, "My feet from from stumbling." That literally has the idea that God was removing an obstacle that was going to cause him to fall and create damage. And so, how did how did really God God help him? Uh, He helped him in several specific ways. But thirdly, this is the part under He heals. So, how did God intervene in the life of David? He hears. He helps, but beginning in verse 8, as we were just reading, he heals. And so he healed him from death, from distress, from damage. Then you have verse 9. This is one of those verses that is wedged in there that you're not quite sure what's happening. He says this in verse 9, I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. This is a vow that he makes. Lord, if you deliver me, man, I'm going to walk, what he's saying is, in the light as you are in the light. I'm going to walk with you. And again, that New Testament counterpart would be, I'm going to walk in the light as you are in the light. That's a very reassuring thing. But man, that's a demanding thing. He's making a vow of a life of obedience. And then would you look at verse 10. It says, I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. Does that seem strange to you? When, when I started to read this psalm, I thought, what in the world is that talking about? Paul actually quotes the Septuagint here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3. He says, I believed and so I spoke. Really, what David is saying here is simply this I kept my faith even when I was in my affliction. He said, I believed when I said, I am greatly afflicted. That word afflicted means emaciated, to be wretched. To be hunched up. It almost has the idea that you are in such a difficult position, you literally are in the fetal position. means pitiful or bowed down. And so in verse 10, God delivered him from despair. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been this past year or maybe years previous in such a place where you were just in the fetal position, there was nothing you could do, and you literally despaired? We just read 2 Corinthians where Paul maybe could have been like that, and God heals him from that. But look at verse 11. He said, he's, I said in my alarm, that word means to make haste or hurry. It has the sense of urgency. I said in my urgency, all men are liars. Again, this seems strange to us, and we're like, I'm not sure what's going on here. This can possibly refer to false accusers against himself or others who say they could deliver him and rescue him, but they didn't make good on it, and they let him down. He delivers him, lastly, from being disillusioned. People will fail you. At times, spouses will fail you. At times, kids will fail you. The Lord will never fail you. Praise the Lord. And He intervenes by hearing, by helping, and by physically healing. David, possibly from this deadly disease. Look back at this past year. Could you identify the fingerprints of God on your life as He's intervened for you, as He heard you when you prayed, and when you called out to the Lord in your distress, and when you were helpless, and He helped you and He healed you? In verses three to eleven, it's what the God, it's what God does for the psalmist, and we see we see the psalmist rescued. And we see David's intervention. But the last part of this psalm, I want you to see number three, uh, the psalmist's response. And here we see David's consecration. This is what the psalmist now is going to do for God. And so he sees God for all who he is, that he is gracious, that he is, that he is righteous, that he's merciful, and he preserves the simple and watches over him, and he's been delivered. And so now this is his response. And I don't know if there is a clear picture in Scripture of heaven's graces compared with man's response and how he ought to respond than psalm 116 so look what he says here beginning in verse 12 he says this what shall i render unto the lord for all of his benefits towards me the word render means to return back or to give back the word benefits is the hebrew word tag mol. it means acts of graciousness so what am i going to do for the lord and how should i respond for all who he is and his transcendence and everything he's done for me he says this in verse 13, I will take the cup of salvation. This is possibly referring to a libation offering or a drink offering. Many times we see this in Numbers chapter 15. Uh, they, would take a, they would take a cup when it says, I shall lift up the cup of salvation. And uh, when it's usually referring to something outside of yourself, it literally has the idea of picking something up. Or carrying it, they would take this cup and they would pour it out next to the altar. Remember in the New Testament when Paul came to the end of his life and said, my life is poured out as a drink offering. There was an idea that God could dispose of his life or use his life however he wanted to. That really Paul was just a sacrifice himself. That, Lord, use me how any way you want to use me. And this is what it's referring to. He says, I shall shall lift up or take the cup of salvation. The very first thing I want you to see here is how we should respond to the Lord. Is that we ought to respond with surrender. I shall take the cup of salvation. We ought to respond with surrender. Could I ask you a question this morning? Are you living for the right things? Maybe are you climbing the corporate ladder, and maybe you get to the top or you get to the world's ladder at the top, and if that's all you live for, you know what you're gonna find that you, that 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 ladder was leaning against the wrong wall the whole time. There's nothing wrong with growing your business or making money. But if that's just it, and God is nowhere involved in that, man, what good is that? What shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world he loses his own soul? The very first way we gotta respond is a life of surrender. Hiru Unada was a second lieutenant, born on March 19th of 1922. He was a Japanese army intelligence officer. He was trained at the Naku school. And he was stationed at Lubang Island in the Philippines. And their, their mission was to conduct guerrilla warfare during World War II. Well, the, uh, the allies won that war. But news did not get to this group of Japanese soldiers who were conducting guerrilla warfare. Years after uh, the war, the U.S. would fly over, drop pamphlets into the Philippines, telling that the war was over, showing pictures. There's been a peace treaty that has been signed, but they just thought it was propaganda. They're, they thought that he was dead, and they pronounced him actually dead. And it was uh, in 1974, there was a, a journalist, a college student who was a journalism major, who believed that Jairu Unada was alive. He went to the Philippines, and he found him. He said, "Hiru, the war has been over for 30 years. He said, my commanding officer gave me a commission and I'm going to be faithful to that commission. He says, if you got to survive on coconuts, survive on coconuts. If you're going to survive on bananas, then live off bananas. He said, I'm not going to relinquish my post till my commanding officer relieves me of my duties. This journalism major went back to Japan. They found his commanding officer. He was 82 years of age and owned a bookstore. They flew him to the Philippines. And there was this meeting where hiro Unada comes out of the jungle in full military dress And he's got his weapon, all these hand grenades. And his officer said, "Hiru, the war has been over for 30 years. It's a fit of rage that came over Hyru Unada. And then he broke down sobbing and weeping as he placed his weapons in the arms of his commanding officer. Here is a man who had been fighting a war that was over for 30 years. How many of us live for the wrong things? How many of us give our lives to things in eternity that are not going to matter? Surrender, lift up the cup of salvation, surrender yourself as a drink offering to the Lord. Would you live a life of surrender? Would you look back at our text and notice what he also says just briefly. He says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon his name. You know what he said, the Lord, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give a life of surrender, but he was going to give a life number two of supplication and a prayer. We already read in verse 1 and 2, Says I, because you are so good and I know who you are, I'm going to call on you to the day I die. I'm going to call on you as long as I live. We ought to be a people of prayer and supplication and run to the Lord. You want to know how dependent you are? How often do you pray? How often do you read the Bible? Would you look back again at our text? It says, I will take the cup of salvation call upon the name of the Lord. The way that this structure is, is verse 13 and 14 is like verse 1. Verse 12 and 13 are verse 1. Verse 14 is the chorus. And then you have verse 16 and 17. That's the second verse. And then verse 18 and 19. That's the chorus again. All right, so look what he says in verse 14. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. What vow is he talking about? The vow that we just read about in verse 9. I'm going to live a life Of obedience. You know what he offered? He offered surrender. He offered supplication. But thirdly, there was a steadfastness or a life of obedience. You know what, folks? I'm just old fashioned enough to believe that a Christian ought to act like a Christian. He says, You know what, Lord, the decisions I gave you in life, the vows that I've made, I'm gonna make good on those. I'm gonna walk with you in the lane of the living. Could I ask you a question? Has there been a time you've been closer to the Lord than you are right now? Are you faithfully living out some decisions that you made maybe in your devotional time this past year? Or maybe God dealt with you about a specific sin. Or maybe something God wanted you to step out by faith and serve him in a certain way. Or maybe giving an amount of money or supporting a missionary. Are you really living a life of obedience, being faithful to what you already promised to the Lord? Maybe a young person, you made a decision at camp this past summer. How are you doing in that decision? And pay your vow to the Lord. I tell you, God dealt my heart tremendously when I was a camper at the Wilds Christian camp. And you know what? People knock camp decisions. 30 years later, mine are doing just fine. I tell you, God worked on my life in such a tremendous way. Are you really paying to the Lord what you promised him? Maybe you stood at an altar. Sickness and in health. For better, for worse, or any circumstance. Are you paying to the Lord what you promised him? But look what he says now. Then he have verse 15. He says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I don't know if you've realized this, but there is a lot of debate about this verse. This has been a conundrum to many commentators and scholars for a thousand years. And uh, really when it says precious in the sight of the Lord is the saints... That word is most often used of a precious stone. And in Sunday school, we had a picture of all these precious stones if you're in Sunday school. And it had the idea of a precious stone, but it could also mean costly or valuable. And so the the, the test of a good commentary is how they deal with hard passages. And you know what? A lot of commentaries they skirt verse 15. This is where theological journals come in, because they kind of fill in the gap. And the first way we take this is, you know what, precious in the sight of the Lord, when, when his saints, when his has said ones, when they go to heaven, man, this is precious in his sight. But because he references death in verses 3 and 8, this could have the idea of being costly. Costly is the death. In fact, one translation translated as grievous, costly is the death of his saints in the sight of the Lord. And that's not necessarily speaking to the eternal salvation as to the price of salvation that God was so willingly to give, that Jesus was so willing to pay on the cross for you. But if you look at verse number 16, what shall I render to the Lord for all these benefits? Surrender, supplication, steadfast. But look at verse 16, O Lord, truly, I am thy servant. I am thy servant and the son of thine handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. The word loosed has the idea to liberate or to flow, or to uncover, or to open up. That was lose my bonds or my fetters. It could also mean correction, reproof, or discipline. So you know what he says? He's going to offer, uh, fourthly, a life of service. I'm going to be your servant. Remember when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples? He said, happy are ye if ye do these things. You know what he was showing them? Servant leadership. The way up is down. And the way to be a great leader is to be a servant. Think about this. Jesus washed the feet of doubters like Thomas. He washed the feet of deniers like Peter. He washed the feet of deceivers like Judas. And he served them without exception and without expecting anything in return. You know what, folks, as believers, we ought to be the greatest servants on this planet see the bumper sticker he who dies with the most toys wins you know what it ought to read he who dies with the dirtiest towel wins could i ask you this morning how dirty is your towel you know why we serve others not because they deserve it we serve them because of him look at what he's done for you And there's a life of surrender, he says, and of sacrifice and of supplication and steadfastness. And look at verse 17. He says, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. Lastly, he's going to offer the sacrifice of praise. And he's going to praise God, not just in a small little circle, Notice what he says here in verse number 18, I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all of his people in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of the O Jerusalem, praise ye the Lord. That, that's hallelujah to the, to, the, to the Lord, hallelujah to the helper. That's where we get our title of, of, of the message this morning. But there is a sacrifice of praise. Can I ask you, when was the last time that you thanked God for saving you from the power and the dominion of darkness? And was it just in a nominal way? When's the last time you ever walked around the house and you thank God for for all the food in the pantry, car or a car's pearl in the driveway? At work, do you ever stop and say, thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving me the health and the skill to do my job today? Or as a student, do you ever thank God for the financial and intellectual ability to prepare yourself for a future job? At a meal, is your thanks just simply perfunctory or routine, or is it a heartfelt expression of gratitude? And God daily loads us with these benefits. And the psalmist said, what shall I render? What am I going to do for this God who has rescued me? Not only just physically, but eternally as well. It is a life of surrender, a life of supplication, a life of steadfast obedience, a life of service and serving others, and a life that offers the sacrifice of praise. That's the gift of gratitude. Man, that's what Thanksgiving, man, is all about. And how he ought to respond to this God. There's many people have tried to figure out some of the response of why the nine lepers, you know, ten were cleansed and only one came back to give thanks. They've often tried to figure out, really, why did, why did those nine not respond? And here's someone's attempt at this. They said one waited to see if the cure was real. One waited to see if it would last. One said he would see Jesus later. One decided that he never had leprosy to begin with. One said he would have gotten well anyway. Or one gave glory to the priest. One said, oh, well, Jesus didn't really do anything. Maybe one could have said any rabbi could have done that. Or one could have said I was much improved. We're we're very much like those nine. And we don't want to admit it, but we are. And we kind of explain away God's good hand, not the psalmist. Poem was written that reads this. Today upon a bus, I saw a lovely maid with golden hair. "'I envied her. She seemed so happy, and how I wished I were so fair. "'When suddenly she rose to leave, I saw her hobble down the aisle. "'She had one foot and wore a crutch, but as she passed, a smile. "'Oh, God, forgive me, when I whine, I have two feet, and the world is mine. "'And when I stopped to buy some sweets, the lad who served me had such charm.'" He seemed to radiate good cheer. His manner was so kind and warm. I said, it's nice to deal with you. Such courtesy, I seldom find. He turned and said, oh, thank you, sir. And then I saw that he was blind. Oh, God, forgive me when I whine. I have two eyes and the world is mine. And walking down the street, I saw a child with eyes of blue. He stood and watched the others play. It seemed he knew not what to do. I stopped a moment. Then I said, why don't you join the others, dear? He looked ahead without a word. And then I knew he couldn't hear. God, forgive me when I whine. I have two ears and the world is mine. With feet to take me where I'd go. With eyes to see the sunsets glow. With ears to hear what I would know. I am blessed indeed. The world is mine. Well, God forgive me when I whine? We have a God this year that's been so, so good to us. But you maybe respond just like David. He gave us a pattern with surrender. And supplication to him, steadfast obedience, serving others in the sacrifice of praise. Hallelujah to the helper. Father, thank you for our time together. Lord, thank you for this incredible psalm, this thanksgiving, how you just lay out for us who you are and what you have done. Father, I pray that we would have a prayerful response to this divine helper that we have had you lord if you don't do another thing for us you've already done too much thank you for saving our soul providing eternal life but for all the things you do for us down here lord help us to respond with your grace like this psalmist to your divine graciousness and grace thank you for who you are and what you've done